Hello there, I'm Doug Devaney and you're listening to the Plastic Podcasts, Tales of the Irish Diaspora, We All Come From Somewhere Else. Find out more about us on www.plasticpodcasts.com. Now a quick warning, please note that this podcast does use one example of bad language, very bad language, but only the one, so you've been warned. My guest today is John O'Donoghue, poet, author, publisher and all-round good mush. His memoir, Sectioned, A Life Interrupted, was the Mind Book of the Year in 2010, and six years later he won the Irish Post Short Story Competition. He's the founder of Wild Geese Press, an independent publisher of works by and concerning the Irish diaspora. Now, officially speaking, he's Dr. John O'Donoghue, but seeing as I've known him as John for a quarter of a century, that's not about to change right now. In fact, the first question I'm going to ask him is, how are you doing? Very well, very well, Doug. Uh, Lockdown is uh, making me feel very well rested. Let's put it like that. Right, you are. And um, and are you you getting your full eight hours? Um, Possibly a little more, Doug. Lassitude hasn't quite done for me yet, but uh, I'm contending with it as well as I possibly can. Like, like manfully, manfully, like, like so many of the rest of us, Doug. And uh, how's the hair? Ah, well, not having had a haircut from February to when the barbers opened again, Doug, it had got a little bit wild and woolly. Uh, so I was very relieved to get a haircut about a week ago. Uh, and now I'm looking as felt as I've ever been, Doug. Yes, well, it's like uh, we, we briefly met up on the Friday before this uh, interview, and John is indeed as svelte as svelte can be. Yes, it's just the eyebrows that need taming now. Indeed, Doug, indeed. <laughs> the, the, the barber does insist on shaving them, which I think is making them worse. Yeah, it's a weird thing, that, with eyebrows, isn't it? You know, so the more you pluck them, the more they come back. And I what should be very careful how I say that. So let's 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 start towards the end, as it were, and uh, and, and, and talk about Wild Geese Press. Um, now, how long has that been running for? It's been going for a year, Doug. But of course, uh, like all great ideas, I've had it for a very long time. I've had that idea for about twenty years. Uh, the Wild Geese Press, you might know, your listeners might know, the Wild Geese were the Irish aristocrats who fled the country uh, after the decline of the Gaelic order. I think the Battle of the Boyne was the big watershed there. So the the chieftains, as they might be known, the, the Irish aristocrats left Ireland. And a lot of them became generals in the courts of Europe. Uh, you might remember the 70s film, The Wild Geese. I think that's what it's referring to. Um, so it, it, in our sort of dispensation, Doug, it means uh, exiles, if you like. The, the people who left the country and came abroad and live abroad. So it's a press uh, particularly focused on um, books by people who are of an Irish background like ourselves and who live abroad. So you see you had the idea 20 years back? Yes. So what prompted that? Uh, Well, I'd been uh, a member back in the 80s, Doug, of an Irish writers group in London called Greenwich Writers, uh, and they used to meet at the Camden Irish Centre to begin with, and then Ken Livingstone gave them some money to open a bookshop in Archway, under Archway Tower, where the DSS was, or the DHSS, as it was then. And uh, we used to meet there, and we put out five anthologies of work. I was in the fifth one. Uh, I think, actually, a few more anthologies. So I looked at uh, what we were doing, and I thought, oh, this is this is a really a good thing to be doing, um, on several levels, on, on the level of 
people like myself been able to explore further and perhaps more deeply their their Irish roots, their culture, and and how that culture then was manifesting itself in in the London of the 80s. I found myself in as a young man, mm. uh, and I I wanted to um, widen the the scope perhaps of what Green Inc were doing. Uh, the bookshop went I think around about the the mid 90s or so. So uh, I wanted to provide the kind of forum I'd enjoyed myself, perhaps on a slightly larger scale, which is what we're hoping. Uh, of course, back then, Green Inc. were pre-internet, Doug. These days we have a website, social media platforms, uh, and we hope to be uh, as down home and local as the Irish are renowned for all over the world, but with the kind of global reach also the Irish are, are famous for. The, the, the Wild Geese Press has two books so, out at the moment, doesn't it? It's um, yeah. Uh, it's what well, I wouldn't start from here and the King from yeah, Over the Water. I wouldn't start from here is an anthology of essays, poems, and stories by divers hands. Doug, a lot of different authors there. Ian Duhigg, the poet. Moy McCrory, the novelist and short story writer. Ray French, um, Sean Campbell, the academic. Uh, a lot of great work in there. We believe it's the first anthology of work by second-generation Irish writers. And then there's a, uh, oh yes, really? yeah, we, we believe it is, uh, a, uh, <coughs> excuse me, Doug, uh, an anthology with that USP in particular, we believe it's the first. Why, why do you think it's taken so long for, for an anthology of second generation Irish writers to, to, to get published? Well, of all the sort of, shall we say, the, the diaspora communities living in this country, Doug, um, were perhaps most renowned for winding the neck in. I think the Irish have been over here, or centuries Doug really uh, and for various reasons cultural political um, we wanted to keep our heads down of course uh, I came of age just as the troubles were starting to really intensify um, back there in the late 70s uh, I remember leaving home and of course the Irish in London which is where I was uh, there were the Jack cartoons that were almost hark back to the Victorian uh, Paddy and Mr. Punch cartoons uh, from the century previously. Uh, there were there was the Prevention of Terrorism Act, which seemed to be particularly focused on one community. I know now that franchise has been widened, but back then, uh, if you were Irish, it was almost been synonymous with at least been a suspect, if not an out-and-out terrorist. So they were... They were different times for the Irish in this country then. I think uh, various various other things happened then in the 90s, such as the Good Friday Agreement, which rolled back the troubles. Um, Jack Charlton's football team, uh, the spread of uh, the Irish theme pub. Uh, suddenly, the Irish, having been for a long time, uh, kind of, shall we say, bet vert, Doug, if I can coin that neologism, a kind of bet noir to the English, suddenly <laughs> became uh, friends again to the English, I think, and and uh, the Irish were again cool. So, uh, so I think that has something to do with it, Doug. But I think also it's something to do with the way uh, the Irish diaspora tends to see themselves when they're comparing themselves to the native-born Irish. The native-born Irish uh, pride themselves on their authenticity. Uh, if mm -hmm. if if the English need people to look and look down on Doug, um, the Irish 
do also, I'm afraid. And of course, uh, with your brilliant podcast series and all you're up to, the kind of notion of the plastic paddy, it's no surprise that started to gain great currency in the 80s and 90s as the, as the diaspora yeah. tried to assert itself a bit. Of course, Mary Robinson, when she became president, she famously put a light in the window of her presidential residence uh, as a symbol that she was reaching out to the diaspora. So that was a great moment too, I think, for for all stripes of Irish people, Doug. So I think that's I think that's why it took so long to get uh, to get that anthology off the ground, Doug. Did you have any difficulty getting hold of authors to um, to contribute to that, given um, the, the the history that you just cited? Well, there? I was approached by Moy McCrory, who was one of the editors of the anthology, and she solicited mm-hmm. a contribution from me several years before we published it. She then told me that she'd got into difficulties with the publisher she had lined up. And it was at that point I thought, well, uh, this is a good time to take the plunge and get this project off the ground. Uh, 20 years previously, Doug, I knew very little about the world of publishing. Um, I'd mm. only had the experience of being with Green Inc. That was, those anthologies were what we'd call community-published uh, works back then. Uh, as, as the years went on, I got to know smaller presses, I got in with um, some big boys, John Murray, uh, an imprint of Hachette now, but a very famous name in English publishing, went all the way back to Lord Byron, mm-hmm. Jane Austen, Conan Doyle, Charles Darwin, Queen Victoria, John Betjeman. They published all of those great authors. Um, so uh, I started to make a few contacts, and between the jigs and the reels, as, as the Irish are fond of saying, I was able to publish both uh, the anthology and The King from Over the Water, which is a collection of my short stories based on my experiences of going over every year to Ireland with my mother to where my six cousins and my aunt and uncle lived in rural County Monaghan. And uh, and when were these um, published and released? Uh, because obviously we were, we've were we been dealing with COVID and so time becomes a, a rather fluid thing. At the yeah, the, the, the space-time continuum has been seriously affected. There's been a rip, uh, my friend. A great big crown shape. Something rip. has happened to us, Doug. We're, we're not the same as we used to be. Um, <laughs> the books. I thank God for that every day. Indeed, the books were published in uh, officially in April 2019, mm. um, and we've just recently published the e-books. Um, we had a very good welcome. Uh, the Irish Times ran uh, in Doohigs essay in the Irish Times and then gave us a wonderful review by Martina Evans for the anthology. Uh, Martin Doyle, the books editor of the Irish Times, also ran a short story from of mine in the Irish Times. That's called Dust to Dust, available online if anyone wants to look it up. Uh, and then he ran a review of The King from Over the Water as well. The Irish Post, uh, the newspaper of the Irish in Britain, they were fabulous to us. They ran about six pieces altogether on the press. And RTE Radio in Ireland, uh, we were an item on their most popular mid-morning show, the Today programme. Mm. Uh, so we were, we got off to a very good start. Uh, the Irish Literary Society up there in London, they go all the way back to Yates. Um, they invited us up for a launch of I Wouldn't Start From Here. And we had a great evening, sold a lot of books, um, made a lot of friends in the audience there. And then, of course, just as we were gearing up to do some more books, uh, covid and the pandemic hit and locked down. So as we're quite reliant at the moment on selling the books direct at events, 
we've decided to kind of um, furlough ourselves, Doug. And uh, we're keeping our wings folded just for a little bit. But we've we've had some very interesting submissions come in and we're looking to go again around about October. You're listening to The Plastic Podcasts, Tales of the Irish Diaspora. We all come from somewhere else. You can find us on www.plasticpodcasts.com or indeed on the usual Facebook, Twitter or Instagram malarkey. My guest John O'Donoghue has written novels, poetry, short stories and memoirs. And I asked him which of these he found easier. Well, sectioned, when, when any book has a, a title like that, Doug, you'll appreciate that there were parts of that were a bit painful to write, a bit painful to recall. Mm. Um, it recounts all sorts of experiences. It starts off with uh, the death of my father when I was 14, uh, my mother becoming unwell. She had a history of poor mental health herself. Uh, and after my father died, the grief sort of took her. So I was asked by a social worker if I want to be fostered. So I went to a, a nice foster family out there in Woodford Green. I thought I'd get a nice middle-class foster family, but I had two very nice Cockneys. Um, then, of course, uh, I had a nervous breakdown myself when I was 16. I was in a hospital again when I was 17. Then my mother died when I was 19. Then I was in a therapeutic community. I was in a large hostel for homeless men in squats on the streets. Uh, and I ended up in Pentonville Prison on remand when I was unwell. And then, uh, in this halfway house, a chap called Martin Lung, a young psychology student from University of Kent at the time, said to me, did I want to apply to university? And I was able to swap one set of institutions for another, Doug. <laughs> Universities, asylums, they both have a lot in common. Uh, large buildings, uh, grassy parklands, uh, hierarchical structures with eccentric people at the top, maybe. So, so right in the memoir was, uh, yeah, there's a... There's a few laughs in it, Doug. There's got to be a few laughs in everything. There's a few laughs in it, of course. But there was there were painful memories I had to recall. Uh, I got through it all okay, wrote it, published it. Um, then my agent had seen some of the short stories I'd written that ended up in The King from Over the Water. And I said to him, what do you think I should do next? He said, I think you should do these, John. So I sat down and had a real good go at that. Um, but, of course, the market for short stories is not as strong as the market for a memoir. So, no. unfortunately, my agent wasn't able to sell them. So, it gave me the opportunity to work on the short stories over a long number of years. I wrote I wrote the first draft of the book quite quickly, about a year, less than a year, Doug. Uh, and, if you like, it's the kind of, uh, it's the happy memoir. If sectioned is the, is the kind of account of hard times, um, the King from Over the Water is the account of good times. My childhood in my summer holidays in Ireland, they were very happy. I go over as an only child with my mother to meet these six wonderful cousins of mine, my aunt and uncle, uh, the village they came from, the characters around that village, uh, the countryside, the fresh air, the, the beauty of it all. Uh, and, my, you know, my, my uncle wasn't by any means uh, in, in English terms a... Uh, in a, in a great job, perhaps. He was a postman. But a postman in mm. Ireland at that time in the 60s and 70s, that was a good job because, you know, it was secure. Uh, Uncle Tommy had a pension at the end of it. And the, the, the great perk of the job for him was that he was in the post van. So he used to go on a 60-mile round trip round Monaghan 
to all these farms and homesteads, dropping off newspapers, parcels, letters, uh, and stopping at most of them to get a cup of tea and a bit of barn break, Doug. So sometimes he'd take us off in the van, and that would be a real treat. So that was the kind of experience that went into um, The King From Over the Water, and uh, it was a joy to remember those times. I fictionalised quite a bit of it, Doug. Uh, yeah. But I did the Dylan Thomas thing in Portrait of the Artist as a Young Dog where I used the real names of my aunt and uncle, my mother, my cousins. Uh, but I fictionalised where we were from and I fictionalised some of the other characters in the village lightly. I fictionalised them and uh, the topography slightly, but not much. All right. I mean, that's briefly so staying with staying with your family. Both of your both of your parents came across from Ireland, yes. Oh yes, yeah. And and when about was that? I think it was in the. I don't know. I think it would have been in the fifties, Doug. I think they were part of the post-war brawn drain when the country. I love that term. It's a nice one, isn't it? It's not my own. I I I heard that a good while back. I think it's seventies or eighties. The country needed rebuilding. Uh, my father signed up for it. He was on the buildings to begin with. Uh, then he was on the railways. Uh, he met my mother. He was from Kerry, the Gael Tocht, where they they speak Irish as their native language. He only left mm-hmm. the, um, the words Banya Orga Shukra, which I think was his way of telling me we'd come to a land of milk and sugar, Doug. Uh, mm-hmm. My mother come from Monaghan. Um, she said that when they used to row sometimes before I came along, that my father used to curse her in Irish. So he he was a bit of a quieter cove by the time I was born. Um, so uh, so they could have only met really, my mother coming from Monaghan, the top end of the country, my father from Kerry, uh, the kind of Cornwall of Ireland. They could have only met in Camden Town, and I think that's where they got married. So, uh, so you, when your dad came over, what was he doing first off? I think he was on the buildings. Like so many, mm-hmm. so many of that generation. I didn't know him when he was on the buildings. Uh, he was on the railways when I came along. He used to work up around Summers Town and uh, King's Cross. I think he was, he was, he was a, what do they call it? A, a fitter's mate. He was a fitter's mate. So he was somebody when they were laying the tracks and things like that. I think he didn't get to do the august job of actually laying the tracks. I think he used to, he used to fix at them and mend them. Uh, so that was. That was my father. At what age did he come across? Good question, Doug. I don't know. Uh, he was he was a man, would you believe, to belie the stereotype. He was a man, uh, a few words. My mother was the more garrulous one. Uh, mm-hmm. I don't know if it was because my father spoke English as a second language. He, he was fluent as far as I knew him. But uh, he was slightly, slightly more, um, slightly less inventive with language of my mother all all mothers all irish mothers in particular have sayings my mother had quite a few one of them would be mm-hmm. um uh you'll you had to wait to be born you'll wait for your dinner that was one of them uh perhaps the choicest one was i was born on a wednesday so she said to me that i was born in the middle of the week i met the two ends of it and i've been resting since <laughs> <laughs> i thought that was particularly <laughs> what? i thought that was particularly cute that so um, and and and, and uh, when she came over, what was she doing? Oh God, she worked. Uh, she told me she had a number of jobs. She worked as a nippy in Joe Lyons' corner house. For those, oh, right. For those who are 
was completely unfamiliar with Joe Lyons' nippies and corner houses. They were the um, they were the sort of working man's cafes, but but slightly posher as I as I understand it. And a nippy was a a waitress because they had to nip in and out of the around the tables. So she mm. was a nippy. She said she was also a nurse, but uh, she didn't like emptying the bedpans. She had a particularly choice epithet for what those bedpans were like, Doug, and what they contained. I won't repeat it here. I'll leave your listeners to imagine. Um, but uh, by the time I come along, she was. They were in that uh, kind of 50s, 60s nuclear family sort of setup. My dad went out to work. My mother was uh, the housewife by and large. But then she did have a few jobs, uh, dinner lady, cleaner. So, so that was my mother. And you were raised, you said, was it the Balls Pond Road area? Well, uh, the first address I can remember is the Beauvoir Road, Doug, which, yes. which when we lived there was, you know, Hackney, uh, quite a poor area, I think. Uh, we were in number 55 to Beauvoir Road. I went back there a while ago. A couple of years back, not having seen it for a good 50 years, and it still stands there. It's a, it's a detached house with pillars in the front, got a sort of faded shabbiness to it, which I, th I think it probably had even when we lived there. We lived in the attic at the top. Uh, my father used to dodge the landlady for the 20 shillings a week rent on a Friday, um, so that's where we lived first of all. And the Bulls Pond Road wasn't too far away. Uh, we got a mass in the Bulls Pond Road. Uh, I think the first school I went to was St. Joseph's in Dalston. Uh, and then we moved. We moved around about 1967 to Leighton, uh, mm -hmm. further out east. I think my father got the offer of a, a kind of council flat in the mid-60s, but I think it would have been in a tower block. So I think what happened was, I don't know for a fact, but I think he tapped the brother in Kerry, where there was a farm of 30 acres, and I think he tapped the brother for some money to put down a deposit on a on a flat and get a mortgage. So we got a kind of flat, uh, the upstairs of a terrace house in Leighton, and that's where mm. and that's where that's where we lived. Um, so you're out east, really? East London, Doug. Not, yeah. Not quite a Cockney. Not quite born within the sound of Bow Bells, uh, but uh, almost. So was there a lot of ducking and diving? You mentioned your dad. Trying to avoid having to pay the rent uh, of a Friday. I mean, was there was there a fair bit of ducking and diving in the uh, O'Donoghue household? Well, give you some indication of the kind of man he was, Doug. Um, my mother told me that um, he come back from the pub one Saturday night, a bit the worse for wear, when we were living in De Beauvoir Road, and there was a little English lady living down in the sort of basement of the house, and uh, he managed to kick her window in. How he did that, I don't know. So he came down very apologetically the next day, Sunday, and he managed to get hold of a bit of glass uh, to fix Mrs. Martin's window, and he was scoring it all out then and ready to tap it with a little hammer to uh, detach it from the, the, the big spread of the glass he had there. And he took up the hammer and he hit the bloody thing into smithereens and said, ah, oh, fuck it, he said. Smashed it to bits, <laughs> smashed it to bits, Doug. So... Um, uh, there was a bit of wildness still in my father. By the time we got to Leighton, he'd calmed down a bit, but the um, the fondness for drink never quite left him. And of course, um, it became a rite of passage for me then. Um, the summer before uh, 
he died, uh, we went over to Ireland. Funny enough, we went over to Monaghan. We didn't see the cousins much. We went to Carrick Macross and stayed in a hotel, which we never really did at all. And he he never would come over. I don't know what happened, whether he couldn't get the time off work or whether there was a feud. My cousins say they don't think there was a feud. Uh, or if he embarrassed himself somehow and didn't want to come and stay with the aunt and uncle. But anyway, this summer he did come over. And we would always, when we would go over, my mother and I, we'd stop off in Dublin before we went off to Monaghan. Back in those days, Doug, everyone went on the boat. So we'd go over on the boat from Hollyhead. Um, we'd go mm. into Dublin. My mother would book into a B&B and have a little shopping expedition uh, in Cleary's down O'Connell Street. So that's what we did uh, the weekend we landed, I think. And um, my father took me out for my first pint aged 14, Doug. So we had a, I had a pint of Guinness in Dublin with the old man, um, and it was a kind of, it was a kind of magical moment. You're listening to the Plastic Podcasts, Tales of the Irish Diaspora. We all come from somewhere else, though we've ended up at www.plasticpodcasts.com. This is the section that I call the Plastic Pedestal, which is where I ask my guests to nominate a member of the diaspora who is of personal or cultural significance to them. John's contribution will come in the next podcast, but in the meantime, you're stuck with me, you lucky people. Now, back in the early 80s, when I was still a faithful left-footer, I had my confirmation ceremony at St Joseph's Church in Maidenhead. Myself and my brother were both there to be confirmed, and my mum and dad were there. My dad, obviously, was beside himself with chuffdom, but not because of the ceremony, but because, three aisles up, and slightly to the left, there was one Michael Terence Wogan. Terry, or Tell to the rest of us, Sir Terry in later life. Now, it's easy to think of Terry Wogan as the link between Eamon Andrews and Graham Norton. Very easy indeed, and I think that's partly because of history and partly because of ubiquity. Certainly, he did seem to be everywhere for a long, long time. There was not only the morning show on Radio 2, but there was also Come Dancing, Blankety Blank, various chat shows, and of course, Eurovision. But it is the radio, inevitably, that I think showed Wogan at his best. Playful, welcoming and surreal, frankly. He was a constant voice in my childhood and I think he broke the mould of perceptions of Irishness. When Irish men and women on the television and on radio were seen as either idiots or intellectuals and nothing in between, he offered the variety not of a personality but of a person. He was urbane and approachable. He was sophisticated and down-to-earth. He was erudite and, frankly, very, very silly indeed. He was one of the original line-up of Radio 1 DJs when it and Radio 2 were one and the same. He brought in record audiences of 7.9 million for his breakfast show. And who could forget the floral dance? God knows, I've tried. He did seem to treat his fame with the same off-hand bemusement that he reserved for the Eurovision Song Contests. But... I do think that he changed the face of light entertainment, and that's no small achievement. He could be subversive as well as comforting, and if you watch any presenter today, they owe a debt to Wogan. Certainly he changed the voice of radio and the perception of Irishness in this country, and it is a measure of his influence that the BBC changed the name of Western House, home of Radio 2, to Wogan House. When he died, it was a bit like a member of the family going, an eccentric uncle perhaps, uh, certainly a warm voice in the corner, and definitely one of us who'd really made it. On the Monday after my confirmation ceremony, by the way, uh, Wogan mentioned the ceremony itself on his morning show, and my dad was beside himself with Chuffton once again. Now, back to the interview, and I asked John O'Donoghue about the death of his father and how he started writing. (laughs) 
so you lost your father at 14 right you are and yes. it was a, a year later you were asked if you wanted to be fostered oh yes a year later yeah, yeah. right but uh, also that time you started taking up uh, taking up poetry yes i did and uh, do you think that was that they were connected the death of your father and, and, and starting uh, to write oh definitely yeah definitely i'd we had a great english teacher when i was at school mrs punchin mm -hmm. and uh she introduced us to uh dylan thomas and i was so entranced she had a record of dylan thomas reading his work right and i was so, so entranced by this voice and what was coming out of the record player i sort of made a study of dylan thomas so I found out that he kept these exercise books, these notebooks, Sylvine exercise books. Yeah, remember them so, well. Remember them well. And um, I, I read these notebooks and started keeping some myself. Uh, and the first poems I started trying to write were, oh, I'm, I'm almost ashamed to say, they were, they were like paraphrases of Dylan Thomas. And I, I served a kind of apprenticeship, I suppose, from the age of about 14 to, oh, I suppose about 19 uh, and then um, a little bit later, I ripped up the notebooks and some other work I had because I didn't want to be always looking over my shoulder. Hmm. Uh, so then then it was uh, Green Ink Writers. That's when I got a, foot, uh, a couple of poems published. And a little bit before that, in 1985, I went along to the City of London where you could read out your poem as part of a competition. And there was a poet there called Alan Brown, John, who was adjudicating, and he awarded me a little prize for this poem I read out, and uh, and then I got into Green Ink, and and the rest is not quite history yet, Doug. Uh, no. Because what, whatever happened to history, Doug, I think lockdown has, has knocked it sideways at the moment, hasn't it? <laughs> I'm not so sure about the future either. No. I think I think for the purposes of uh, being an Irish writer, the rest of it is, is not history, Doug. It, I think it's more geography. Mm -hmm. the, rest of it is, the rest of it is geography, Doug. And you've written... You, 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 you've written bravely and eloquently about your, your own uh, struggles with mental health mm. um, and mm. so on. Does the writing help? Well, it, it, would be, uh, it would be wonderful if I could say that the writing does help, Doug, but um, I'm not sure. I think that the keeping of those notebooks was a big help to me. And mm. then later, later on, when I was in various insalubrious places, when I was in homeless hostels and asylums and all that you know i wasn't just keeping company with um an ex-merchant seaman argentina jock or when i was in the squats a couple of hippies big steve and gentle steve uh, i was also keeping company with um you know vion or uh woody guthrie or uh you know maybe even um maybe even john keats or dylan thomas or mm -hmm. or, or poets like that i had i had still that inner freedom uh that my outer circumstances perhaps would seem to chafe against. So I had this kind of sanctuary that um, poetry opened up for me, if you like, a kind of asylum of poetry, Doug. Uh, but then when I came to write the memoir, um, you'd think that that would uh, bring a moment of catharsis. But of course, catharsis, as it was originally conceived, wasn't meant to be a private thing, Doug, as you'll know. It was meant to be something... Uh, an audience experience, yes. an, an audience sitting together in a Greek amphitheatre. Uh, the moment would come when the play reached its its climax, when this purging of the audience, this emotional purging would happen. So I suppose um, we've, we've taken catharsis to mean a kind of therapeutic process 
when it comes to writing. And of course, after I wrote um, section, I had quite a big nervy B after it, Doug. Right. So, so, so uh, what happened was I went over to Ireland uh, as part of the promotion for the book. Mm. And things were going things were going great there, and then I go up to see my cousin Matt, who's about my age, in um, in Monaghan, and uh, he's married now. And we we were going out for a drink, and my my cousin's wife said to me, Eileen said to me, keep an eye on him, John. So as we were going out, I thought to myself, oh, to hell with this. I'm not going to keep an eye on him. He's going to have to keep an eye on me. <laughs> so I got a bit tanked that night. Then, of course, uh, I'm lying in bed the next morning, and Matt comes in and says to me, will we go and see your mother's grave? So we go to see my mother's grave, and then that's what started me. That's what plunged me into this five-month depression. So um, I'd, like to, I'd like to say to your audience, Doug, yes, writing, it's wonderful for you. Uh, if you're having any problems, do turn to writing. It'll... It'll do wonders for you. But the caveat is perhaps if you're going to go to dark and, well, as I experience them to be potentially dangerous places, it might be good to avail of somebody who can be a support to you as you're going through that, and not only to help you with the writing and the kind of emotional fortitude you need for that kind of writing, but also to... Um, to advise you on uh, on the moves you should make once it's done. Cause... I was reading, and um, two years back, the OECD uh, put out uh, results of a study which suggested that the Irish are among the most depressed people in the Western world. Goodness. With 12% of Irish uh, suffering from depression. It's coming second only to Iceland. Um, and then... Um, there, also in the same year, in 2018, there was there was an endeavour to study whether or not um, depression was uh, had genetic factors involved. Ah, so, yes. so you, you got those questions of sort of whether it's a, it's it's a it's, it's a racial thing or a, or, or a genetic thing. And we were talking mm -hmm. about that, and you were saying that you you, you felt as much of it was kind of more as much sociological as anything. Indeed, I think I think there's something in the the idea that the generations have passed it down as a as a terrible legacy. Mm. Um, as much as we're a people who are congenitally starved, I think we might be congenitally depressed. <laughs> uh, I think the kind of traumas that were visited on us historically, the penal laws and, uh, you know, famine and, I don't know, emigration and things like this, they've, 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 they've taken their effects on the Irish, I'm sure. Uh, to say nothing, perhaps, of the weather and, uh, you know... I've, Look at my own parents. You know, they they had to leave the country just just in order to make a living. Yeah. But I think uh, it's it's as we were talking about, uh, or well, my wife was saying to me the other day. Here's uh, here's an article here. She says where they've looked at uh, where the the likelihood of places in the in the UK are for new uh, new spikes in the coronavirus mm -hmm. epidemic, and she says, look, they're all they're all pockets of social deprivation. Uh, it's perhaps not any surprise that Leicester uh, is in lockdown, and I, and I think as we was you know as we were saying, uh, people want to say something about you know culturally the Asians of Leicester they, you know they live in crowded housing and they they work in sweatshops and it's no wonder it happened. Well, well why are they living in crowded houses? Why are they working in sweatshops? I mean you know you can't ascribe just these things to. Asian people's culture. It but it's exactly, it's exactly like the, um, the, the the Irish of your of your dad's generation and so forth. They would have been living in in, in crowded conditions and working on on building sites. Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, you know, uh, a lot 
a lot of the Irish then, I mean, my dad was quite lucky really to, to get to the place where he got to in terms of, you know, having a bit of property in this country because mm. a lot of the, a lot of blokes who who didn't get married, who carried on as been single, you know, they would be in the Routon House, the, the 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 hostels for homeless men. Then, I mean, even to this day in Arlington House in Camden, uh, there's still I think a lot of Irish people at that time. That generation's starting to die out a little bit. I think these things are inextricably linked, Doug. I think uh, mental health is is as much to do with politics as is, is to do with personal circumstances. I I experience my uh, awkward time, shall we say, when the asylum system was kind of more or less at its height still, I think. When I went into hospital, first of all, in 1975, the treatment was open-ended. There was no pressure on me to give up the bed and get out and only to be there for a fortnight. The, the, I, I, I was there for months. I was there for six months. And many years later, I went to the Maudsley to sit on a panel to talk about mental health. And I met a few psychiatrists before the, the panel was due to convene. And they told me that in the profession, Claybury, the hospital I was first in, mm -hmm. uh, in Woodford Bridge in Essex, was known as beautiful Claybury because the grounds and a lot of the old asylums, of course, had been stately homes. Right. So, so, uh, so the grounds were as beneficent as as any any other kinds of treatment I, I experienced there. But of course, I also lived through the 80s then and started to see the the asylums winding down and the morale in the in the hospitals then was palpable. The the the, the complete collapse of it, the depression. It seemed to me was coming more off the the staff than the patients then. You're listening to the Plastic Podcasts, Tales of the Irish Diaspora. We all come from somewhere else. Find us on www.plasticpodcasts.com. I asked John O'Donoghue how he felt as a member of not just of the diaspora, but also of the London Irish, and whether that made a difference. Wherever the Irish go, they, they take their sense of community with them. And that's what I found um, in the 80s in London. I found uh, a great sense of community. And um, wherever I've gone, I've sought out other Irish people, um, tried to create some of the things or recreate some of the things that were important to me. I mean, my, my mother, for instance, uh, could play the fiddle. Uh, my uncle played the fiddle. My eldest cousin could play the fiddle. I've passed on that. Um, Irish music making and music making in general to my own children, tried to ensure that they mm -hmm. got a good musical education uh, and I suppose um, the emphasis on education was a big thing as well although of course, again back to my mother's sayings she had the the typical Langian double bind about it, the first thing she said to me would be um, study hard at the books and then when I seemed to be taking too long over this she'd say our books won't feed you, she'd say <laughs> <laughs> so um, so whether the books have fed me or not, I'm not sure, Doug, but uh, I, perhaps I've tried to prove one of those sayings wrong. Yeah. Now, you've entered into the the, um, the, the, the hallowed halls of academe, Dr. John O'Donoghue. Yes. PhD and bar. Yes, Doug. I, I managed to leave school with uh, three O-levels and actually an elementary swimming certificate. Uh, and Elementary swimming? Oh, yes. Elementary swimming. I, 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 I seem to master that to a proficient enough level for them to award me this much prized certificate, which, of course, like all my uh, certificates, apart from the ones uh, I gained latterly, they've all been lost, those ones. I don't, I, don't, I don't think they counted for much anyway, Doug. But um, <laughs> the, 
No, uh, I was in I was in this halfway house as I say, and I sort of I sort of caught myself on a bit. I I got to my late twenties and I I said to myself I don't think I can get on with this kind of life much more. You know the psychiatric merry-go-round. It was starting to take its toll. Uh, when you're young and resilient and kind of adventurous, you're able for these things. But I was getting towards the age of 30, and I thought to myself, I've got to get sorted out a bit here. And luckily, as I say, uh, it'd been an aspiration of mine um, when I was a teenager to go to university. But as you'll see, I didn't get the levels uh, for various reasons. So this young fellow, Martin Lund, said to me, um, well, why don't you apply to university? And I actually said to them at that point, I said, well, it's for posh people, isn't it? And he said, no, 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 it's, it's for everyone. He says, why don't, you, why don't you apply and I'll help you. Just do it to keep your options open. So I thought, well, I'm not going to lose anything uh, by this. So I, uh, I applied to three universities, Kent, Sussex and UEA. Kent didn't want to know. Sussex wanted me to do history. And UEA seemed to like the look of me. Asked me to do an essay, uh, which I got in a week late, uh, uh, typical student, typical, student t typical me uh, as it's gone on Doug uh, but uh, a woman there called Jocelyn Houseman who was not like the Howard Kirks of UEA not uh, a Marxist academic by any stretch of the imagination more like somebody who might have read the Daily Telegraph and Road to Hounds really uh, mm. not a posh woman but she was the one who interviewed me and it, I think it was her basically who opened the door so I'm forever grateful to Martin London to her because I, I went and studied at uh, UEA I I kind of did some extracurricular things as all students do but one thing I did was I went to the library and uh, read the stories of Frank O'Connor particularly I remember reading The Guests of the Nation before I got to university a story of his which is a particularly famous story and then I got into the rest of his work tried to see how he did what he did and I think they're a bit behind the King from Over the Water, some of them, as are the stories of Sean O'Fail in. And then, of course, uh, I met my wife. Uh, we we moved to London. And then um, I thought, well, I quite like this student lark. And I, and I like studying. And I wanted to take my, my kind of s studies of Irish literature in particular a bit further. So while I was at Birkbeck doing the MA of Modern Literature in English, I studied quite a lot of uh, Irish authors uh, and did my dissertation on the three London novels of J.M. O'Neill, Jerry O'Neill, all great novels. And uh, then I went and did, uh, by, by this I was running out of rope dug, so I had to go and get a teacher's cert. Went and got the teacher's cert and did a bit of teaching for a while, got me tin hat and, uh, you know, people used to say to me, what do you teach, John? I used to say, I teach English and good manners. Uh, that would give you some indication of the kind of place I was in, Doug. So then um, I started trying to do this PhD at Sussex, but couldn't get any funding for it. Uh, so then things had to go into the long grass for a bit. And then around about 2000, I saw uh, an advert in The Guardian, Bath Spa, were offering a bursary to go and study for a PhD in creative writing. A PhD in creative writing, Doug. Only UEA were doing it before them. And, yeah. and they were there were very few places at all offering a PhD in creative writing. So I went and uh, enrolled at Vastbar, to cut a long story short, managed to get on the on the first cohort, there were six of us. And uh, then I, I I managed to get, started to get work in higher education while I was doing the PhD. 
and uh, I have had a a 14, 15 year record of uh, of working in various universities, Doug. Might I add, always on precarious contracts. <laughs> yeah, tenure, Doug. It's when you when when you, when you say it's like uh, oh, education is for posh people and things like that. Was that a sense of what you as John O'Donoghue, lad from London, or is it you, John O'Donoghue, um, son of son of two Irish? I I think I'd got brutalised to tell you the truth, Doug. I think it had got yeah. I think it had got knocked out of me those aspirations, uh, the ability to see beyond survival. I think uh, you know Mrs. Thatcher is seen in some quarters as a as a person who was uh, able to inspire a, a generation of entrepreneurs to allow working class people to, um, you know, do well for themselves. Well, I think there was also a large tranche of the country that didn't do well for themselves under Mrs. Thatcher no. and went in another direction entirely. And I think I was one of them. You know, if, if she was a revolutionary, well, as they say about revolutions, you have to crack eggs to make an omelette. And I think for quite a while there, I was one of the cracked eggs when you when you when you talk about your 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 literary uh influences mm. and so on there, there there's a, there's a vast range of uh, of irish writers that you cite yes um is your irish identity caught up with that creativity there i mean so what does being a member of the diaspora mean for you well it took me a long while to work it out doug i'm not i'm not irish in the sense that my cousins are irish i'm one of the london irish i'm one of these hyphenated mm. irish people uh, and we, of course, have as a kind of as distinct a culture as perhaps the Dublin Irish have, or the Belfast Irish, or the Derry Irish, or the Cork Irish. Uh, we've got our own thing going on. Shane McGowan exemplifies it wonderfully, but it's also there in the novels of Gerry O'Neill. Uh, some of Edna O'Brien, it's there in. Uh, she's a, another great Irish writer uh, connected with London. Um, so I think what I'm very aware of is that I draw on this heritage of mine but it's not just a, a nativist heritage if you like it I'm not just looking back to shall we say the mainland I'm not just looking back to Ireland I've also no. I've also found that there's uh, great Irish writers in London and of course London uh, is a bit of a theme it's definitely a theme in section because a lot of it takes place there uh, I've gone on to write another novel called Lullaby of London which is a bit of a thriller set amongst the mm -hmm. Murfoisie of Irish London, the generation after my parents, my own generation, uh, a lot of the Irish who came over in the 70s and 80s had a more secular view of how to set up things. I think in my parents' day, welfare provision was mainly the remit of the church for the, the generation inspired by the civil rights movement in the north and, and shall we say... Uh, a gradual secularization of the, the country, the nation of Ireland itself. They set up housing associations, they set up Irish centres, they set up welfare agencies, advice agencies in, in London, and I was very aware of them. So I wanted to write a novel about those kind of experiences, but also, of course, uh, in the novel, the main character, Mick Kavanagh, um, receives a tranche of letters from an ancestress of his who was alive during the famine. So I wanted to touch base with, you know, a kind of uh, a seminal Irish moment. The, mm. the novel's one of a projected series of five. Uh, as you'll know, Doug, the world's biggest library is the book I'm about to write. So I won't, <laughs> I won't say too much about them. But uh, 
they tried to take on the subject of two things, I suppose. Crime with a small C. Uh, this fellow becomes a bit of a sort of private detective in, in some ways, a private eye type figure. But also um, the larger crime of imperialism. Absolutely. Oh, yes. Absolutely. Just a couple of things. Um, one is that you said that you, you thought that the London Irish have their own particular culture and identity there. What would you say that defines that? Well, uh, our spokesman, of course, is Shane McGann. And, and Shane McGann does the two things I'm sort of talking about here. He's got great uh, songs uh, that are about Ireland. Uh, but, he's, mm. but he's also got songs about, you know, the old main drag. Uh, he's got, you know, A Rainy Night in Soho. He's got songs that, are, well, uh, you'll have noticed that the title of uh, this novel of mine, Lullaby of London, that's the title of a Pogue song as well. So he's he's very much got this, this kind of, this hardness. I think there's, what characterises the London Irish is a hardness because London, uh, for the Irish, was a hard place. You worked hard. You played hard, you probably fought hard, you drunk hard, uh, you did a few other things hard. Uh, I'll leave the listeners <laughs> to work those ones out. Um, but at the same time, you were aware of this hinterland, uh, this this place just a, a couple of hundred miles or so across the water, uh, which, of course, your parents, if you if you were like me, would have called home. They used to say... My mother used to say every year we're going home. We're going home for the holidays. So home was kind of Ireland. Uh, now, I've I've come to realise that, yes, for my mother, that was home. And, and in many ways, uh, it's my home too. But England is also home. London's home too. So um, I've arrived at this, shall we say, accommodation with England. I've got to, I've got to love England, Doug. I think my father... Yes. My father had a different attitude to England than the English, but I, I suppose I've had it easier than him in some ways. So, uh, so that's that's the kind of synthesis I suppose I've arrived at. That's brilliant. I suppose the last thing I want to, I want to say is, is we we call this plastic. Yes. Uh, the podcast because of the term plastic paddy. Yeah. And, uh, and so on. And it's that sense I suppose that there's no authenticity to the to to, to the Irish diaspora, particularly in this country. Mm. Um, but I think what you do kind of gives the lie to that. The, the whole notion of authenticity, it's for everyone to work out. It's not for other people to ascribe uh, authenticity or lack of authenticity to other people. It's for people to claim um, that for themselves and to work it out for themselves. And I think that's what I've been trying to do these long years. Uh, I was bequeathed um, an identity, uh, you know, uh, the, 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 the rural holidays I enjoyed with my mother, the, the Irish music and uh, the sense of the crack, as they say, the wit and the, the repartee of the Irish. But then, uh, you know, uh, when my parents went there, I had to go and find it and find other, other ways into that sense of home and identity again. But I also had to make it for myself too. Uh, and I, you know, I think some of the Irish uh, who are sort of wanting to uh, go on still about plastic paddies. I mean, I've heard a, I've heard another uh, refinement of that, Doug, the elastic paddy, which I the elastic paddy, which yes. I quite like. But uh, I think what they what for for for, for both of our listeners, why don't we um, 
Why, why don't we explain what the elastic paddy is? Well, I think there's certain there's a couple of senses of it that I understand, Doug. One is the one the elastic paddy is somebody who leaves Ireland and then comes back to it. So there's the mm. there's the elasticity there. But I think there's also a certain sense too of an elasticity of identity that it can be stretched a bit. So that's that's what I like to tap into because I think the thing about the Irish who want to call their cousins or whatever plastic paddies, I think they see it as a diminution of Irishness, whereas I actually think I've added to my identity. I've got the Irishness, yes, but I've been able to add this Englishness to it as well, just as Shane McGowan has. This l- hmm. Londonness, shall we say, in the first instance, but also uh, Brighton, uh, where I live now, and beyond that, sort of Sussex. So I think uh, I've my parents, they didn't lose by leaving Ireland. They kind of gained themselves, and I've been able to do that also. So I think that's where I come from, and I think that's what Mary Robinson, when she lit that candle in the presidential residence, I think that's what she was trying to say. She was trying to say, we recognise that you left these shores, but we still salute you and recognise you as our kin, and you know we, we remember what you did. So John O'Donoghue's work can be found courtesy of the Wild Geese Press, which is on www.thewildgeesepress.com. And um, and books are available, what, in all fine independent bookshops? Uh, once they're open? Once they're open, Doug. <laughs> uh, online, usual sellers online. Um, yeah. And uh, once we get uh, lockdown lifting, Doug, of course, events again, events. So it's, mm. so keep, keep, keep following us on the... Uh, on the website and social media, you'll find us quite easily. And um, have you got Facebook and Twitter and all that? We we have Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, Doug. Instagram. What do you do with Instagram? We have a fine young intern who deals with that. I know nothing about Instagram. I believe if you take a hundred selfies, you get an Instagram from the Queen. That's how I understand. <laughs> Marvelous. Yeah. <laughs> You've been listening to the Plastic Podcasts, Tales of the Irish Diaspora, with me, Doug Devaney, and my guest, John O'Donoghue. Theme music is by Jack Devaney. Now you can find us on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram, email theplasticpodcasts at gmail.com, or simply go to www.plasticpodcasts.com. I think I might have mentioned that. It's got all the links and details you could possibly want, or indeed need. The Plastic Podcasts is supported using public funding by Arts Council England.